Our reading this morning comes from 2 Corinthians 5, 11 to 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 11 to 21. And it reads, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but, we are, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you with praise and joy in our hearts this morning, God, knowing that through Christ we are able to call you Father. You are a good God. And you demonstrated that many times and in many ways just this week, Father, not even thinking about the span of our entire lives, Father. We thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, we pray that you would help us set aside any distracting thoughts or issues this morning that would compete for the attention that's rightfully yours in receiving this message that you've put on Pastor Kyle's heart, Lord. Um, we pray that you would bless Pastor Kyle's mouth and the meditation of his heart as he preaches your word. May it implant deeply into our hearts so that we would be changed, Father, more Christ-like walking out of this building than when we walked into it. We pray this in the holy, precious, matchless name of Christ. Amen. Good morning. What is it that compels your life? What is it that that motivates you to take steps to move forward? What is it that moves you with the goals that you have, with the self-disciplines that are a part of making life work? We, we all have motivations. We all have something that compels us. And as Christians, we know what the right answer should be. We know as well as the children in Sunday school right now, that the answer to that probably is Jesus. But we also recognize that there are a lot of other motivations that press up against us. There's a lot of motivations that pull us, that entice us. And so though the, the idea of what compels us should be rather clean-cut and straightforward as God's people, and yet at times it gets a little bit more complicated for us. We've seen that there were people in the city of Corinth where the Apostle Paul's writing the letter we're studying. There were people there who were belittling Paul's ministry in order to exalt their own influence in the church. 
Paul's concern is not that his own status is protected. Rather, he's concerned that they would not exchange gospel clarity for some form of self-centered religion. Uh, a belief in God, some form of faithfulness to the things of God, but it being centered around really getting what they want. In other words, he doesn't want the church to imitate the influence that's coming in. He wants them to see the gospel clearly so that their lives would be compelled by the gospel. Last week, as we studied the first part of chapter 5, uh, we saw that we're to live in, in expectancy if we are the people of God because of the wondrous works that he has done and that he continues to do in us. Today, in building on that, the Apostle Paul wants us to see what should compel our lives and what is it that we are compelled to be. So first, we, we look at what should compel every true Christian. And he begins by declaring it is the truths we know about God that should compel us. Verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of God, we persuade others. What drives Paul in his ministry for the gospel? He says, it is Knowing the fear of God, and the word therefore uh, lets us know that this statement builds on what he has just said previously, how we ended the message last week with verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. Because we must all stand before God, because we're accountable to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. We all stand before him. Because that is true, Paul says that knowing the fear of God in his heart, he is persuaded. That's what motivates him and drives him. There are many people who claim to believe in God, and they really do. They, they believe there's some kind of being out there, and yet we would recognize there are lots of people who believe in God who are not compelled by Him. We don't see anything in their life that is motivated by the reality of God. It doesn't direct them, it doesn't shape them, it doesn't move them. And that's because there is no fear of God in their hearts. They don't fear God. Now, to fear God means to see him in all of his true character. It is to have a right recognition of what God is like and then respond appropriately. And so the, the fear of God can be a, a somewhat broad uh, concept that uh, captures different responses and emotions. 
Uh, the fear of God begins with recognizing his holiness. We realize he is a holy, perfect God who is also judge. And so the, the fear of God and knowing he is holy, that fear of God leads us to repent of sin. Because we know he is, he is the God who rules over all. We we must come before him. The fear of God, seeing him correctly in his holiness, that's what leads to repentance. That's what leads to holy and obedient living. But to fear God is also to see his love, his mercy, his graciousness, and his majesty, because that is also the, the character of God. And so to to see his grace is the fear of being in awe and wonderment of God and being drawn to have hearts that follow him. We, we want to pursue him. We want to please him. And so the fear of God is to see what God is like, to truly grasp it in our heart. And if we know what God is like, we are compelled by him. And so we could, we could word it a different way. To fear God is to take him seriously. It is to respond appropriately. And, and so to take God seriously, we want to know what has God said what is on God's heart? What does God expect? What does God say about our present? What does God say about eternity? To fear God is to take him seriously because there is, there is no more important and serious person in the world. This taking God seriously should cause us to examine our true heart motivations. And that's what Paul's getting to in verses 11 and 12. Therefore, because we are accountable to God, knowing the fear of God, having that, that persuades us. But what we are is known to God. So God knows us. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Paul wants the church to examine themselves that they would recognize what is surface and shallow, what does it mean for those who are concerned with surface things who are not concerned about their heart? They're not concerned seriously about God. Even though they may talk about serving God, that's just for manipulation. Their, their motivations show that God is not driving them. Their self-exalting religion shows where true motivation is. Paul says, let us look at ourselves so that our motivation would be different. That God who knows us, we would, we would have fear of him. Paul's trying to pull them away from shallow motivation. And is that any less a need for us today? 
there are lots of motivations in the world, and if we think about them in terms of God, in terms of eternity, in terms of what's really important, how many of the motivations that drive people in this world are very shallow? What are you taking more seriously than it deserves? What is perhaps compelling and motivating you to a degree it doesn't deserve to be that much of a motivation? It could be the pursuing of wants and goals. It could even be goals and wants that are that are not against the Word of God. They're not contradictory. They're good things to have, but the having of those things has become so important to you that it, it, you push down more important things to get there. For example, if, if your goals of what you're trying to be and to accomplish in your mind are telling you, I'm so busy, I have no time to even open God's Word each day. Can't we admit there's, there's a motivation problem where I have to get to what I want to do and that would cause me to ignore the fact that God speaks and that what he speaks is more important than the voice of anyone in the world. It's more important than all the voices in the world. Do we take God seriously enough that we are compelled by him? We're compelled to pursue and know him because we have seen something of the greatness of God. And he is the one that fills our heart motivations above anything else. It, it could be wants that are taken more seriously than they deserve. It, it could also be offenses. Someone has hurt us, bothered us, we're angry, and we're holding on to bitterness. We're not forgiving, and we've broken relationships, and that, that's, we may say we've compartmentalized it, that we're just bothered by this one person, but bitterness never stays in the room where we keep it. It's like we have a three-year-old and a one-year-old in our house this week. They never stay where you put them. Neither does your sin, neither does your bitterness. It doesn't stay with that person in place where you think you put it. And so are we treating some offenses of what someone's done? And it's real, it hurts, but has that become, that's motivating how you're treating people and how you're thinking rather than the gospel of Jesus Christ. What should compel every true believer? It should be knowing the fear of God. 
what we know of him compels us. Secondly, the love we have experienced in Christ should compel us. Verse 14, can't be more plain and upfront than this. The love of Christ controls us. The phrase controls us means to, to constrict, to hem in. So Paul is saying, the love of Christ, what I have received from Christ, it, it provides limitations, it, it shapes and directs how I live. Christ's love controls me. It sets the direction for how I am thinking and living. There are a lot of things that are trying to grab the wheel. There are many things that are wanting to compel and motivate me, but I have experienced this love of Christ, and that is what will control how I live. For this, this love that we have experienced in Christ. It's not just a love out there. The love that has been directed and poured out upon us. It is the love in actions that have demonstrated the greatest acts of humility ever taken place in this world. God becoming flesh. God joining himself with human body and nature forever. Forever. Because that was the only way that we could be joined in fellowship with him forever. The greatest act of sacrifice ever. The Holy Son of God being crushed for our sin and bearing the price in full to redeem us to the payment of the price that sets us free. No greater acts of commitment for Christ demonstrated his love for us while we we're yet sinners. While we were just consumed with our own interests, who pursued us? The person of Christ pursued the cross to make possible our salvation and then personally chased us down. And we tried to shrug him off. We tried to make some nifty moves. And he stayed faithful. Until he had captured our hearts. Here is the love of humility, of sacrifice, the love of the greatest degree of commitment, for he is committed to you forever. He has covenanted with you, made the commitment, I will save you. We've already heard it to the uttermost. How often do you give up on yourself? Throw your hands in disgust. Christ 
never does that. He never says, that's it, I'm out, done, done. Though we all know we deserve that he would respond that way. And yet, he never will because of the greatness and the integrity of his love. The love that led Jesus to die for us compels us then to live beyond ourselves. To live for others, verse 15. And he died for all that those who live might no longer, what is the motivation controlling us to be and to do, that we would no longer, because we used to, that we would no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The answer to every bit of self-centeredness and we've got a lot of bits of self-centeredness. The answer to our self-centeredness, all the answer we will ever need is in the manger and the cross. So how much do I have to do for people? I mean, come on. How many times have I put myself out for them? And I got to do it one more time? What's the answer to that? Jesus put himself out forever for you. Jesus put himself out forever for you. How long does he have to remain God in flesh? Do, you, do we really think that was a step up? The eternal son of God permanently making himself God and man. He's got a body he's got to carry around forever. We're used to it. He was the spirit being, the, the boundless God. And now he's got this body. What does he need that for? To save you. To share in what you go through. Because he loves you. The manger itself is enough. And then to speak of the cross. How much more do I have to do? How much more sacrifice? How much more commitment? How hard this is? How tired I am? And all those things are real. Yes, we get tired. And yes, it's hard. And yes, people frustrate us. I know people too. In fact, I know you. These things are real. But so is the cross. So is the blood flowing down from the Holy Son of God. That is real. 
And so the gospel, the work of Christ, gives us new eyes for people. There's another therefore, verse 16. From now on, therefore, because of what Christ has done, and because this love controls us, and because what it controls us to do is not just live for ourselves, because of that, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regard even Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. We don't look at people like the world does, by their standards. So when we see people, we're not seeing them by cultural standards. Well, they don't fit in. What's wrong with them? We don't see them as someone who is less than because they don't fit what is supposed to be beautiful and pretty and wise and good and fruitful. And we're not exalting those who have what the world exalts. We're not impressed by that. We're not seeing people through the eyes of culture like the rest of the world. We're seeing them as each one of them. Someone created specifically in the image of God and completely broken of soul. And in desperate need of Jesus. And each person we see has that reality in common. They, they are created in the image of God and they need Jesus. And it doesn't matter how cleaned up they are or how filthy they are or how smart they are or how weak they are. They are those whom God has made and need Jesus. So we're not, we're not intimidated by worldly accolades, and we're not put off by dysfunction. We see people as the gospel defines them. So what compels us? What we know about God means we, we take him seriously. What we have experienced in Christ controls now the way we think and live. And there's one more motivation. Verse 17, the transforming power of the Holy Spirit compels us. Another therefore, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold. He's saying, Pay attention, look at this. New has come. The believer is not merely, someone has new information. It's someone who by the power of God has a new nature is God saying a new creation. God is saying something new that didn't exist before is now true of you. And we've already seen some of this described numbers of times, particularly in chapter 3. Let's just look at one of these statements in chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. It is being descriptive of this new creation. 
Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, all now seeing, we're beholding the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. What are we being transformed into? Glory. The image of Christ. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And so we cannot accurately see our lives. We cannot accurately see who we are if we don't see the supernatural activity of the Holy Spirit as part of who we are. And so stop viewing your life as the sum of your abilities, your labors, your decisions. That's my life. No. The Spirit of God who lives in you, who are making decisions, who have abilities, it is he who is now the bigger person in your life, unless you're willing to say, no, I'm a bigger person than the Spirit of God. No, I could outwork him. The actions of the Spirit of God, my abilities and my decisions, which one is greater? Is that something we need to even think about? We're so close to our decisions, abilities. You know, they're, they're always right here because they're ours that they dominate us. But we, we saw last week we, we walk by faith, not by sight. Walking by faith isn't walking blindly. It means what we have from God, what we know is true, is enough to trust Him. So what we've experienced from Christ and the Spirit of God is showing us that if he says he's here and he's active, then he's here and he's active. And so this surpassing power, chapter 4, this surpassing power and faithful presence of the Holy Spirit compels us to live new because that's what we are. The reality that I don't have to hold all this up. That I don't have to make all this happen. Because if I have to make it all happen, I'm just going to run and hide. It's the reality of the Spirit's presence sustaining and accomplishing that compels us to keep moving forward. Because we're not carrying it. And if you're trying, cut it out. God's way too smart to leave it to you. Not trying to insult you. But God's, he knows what you are. He knows our frame that we are dust. He's not leaving it to you. He's empowering you. So we've looked at what should compel us, what we know of God, what we've experienced of Christ, the reality of the Holy Spirit. And so the next major question is, 
well, what is it that we should be compelled to be? We've got lots of compelling going on. What is it we're compelled to be? Verse 18 and following. He tells us. Isn't that helpful, Paul? All this is from God. All that we've just talked about is from God, who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, what's this ministry of reconciliation? In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins and trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sakes he made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. So what is it that we're compelled to? We're compelled to be people of the gospel, people who represent Christ. People who live for Christ, people who love Christ, people who are showing Christ, people who are speaking of Christ, that we represent him. So whatever that you're doing, whatever your place and role in the world and all sorts of careers and places, that whatever your place is, you now are in that place representing Christ because everyone in that place needs to see and know of Christ. And so all that we are is what God has done through Christ. That's how this revealing of what we're compelled to begins. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled himself to us. We are the subjects of God's great work in order that we would be part of great purpose. Uh, Paul speaks about the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, really making the same point. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're, we're created new for something, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God, before there was a world, before there was time, God knew you and pursued you and saved you and has works for you that were prepared before the world was created. Sounds important to me. Sounds special. Sounds worthy. These works in us, this workmanship of God, it's all real. There's no height, it's all real. It's all eternal, eternal, eternal. What are you doing that's eternal? Half the stuff I do, you got to do it again the next week. 
After two years, I finally cleaned out the gutters. It was all sod by now. I was trying to get satisfaction in it being done. And all I could think of was when I got to do it again. Pulling out the slop, throwing it down. Got to do this again for the rest of my life. Why don't my kids live home? I'd take a son-in-law that lived around, anyone. We spend a lot of energy, the things just by nature, they get, we do them. It's not done. It's done for the moment. The things that God has done are done forever. They, they reach into forever. That's being a part of something worthy. Are you living as if God's job is to fulfill your plans? If you are, God is rather uninterested. He's interested in you. But the idea that you've come up with your plans for life. And God has his wondrous, eternal, saving, transforming, majestic, glorifying plan. And he's going to look at your separate plan that is pulled away just what you want to do. And God's going to say, yeah, I think yours is better. I'll just... Throw mine off to the side and invest myself in your selfish desires. It's, it's not going to happen. What, what foolish God would exchange the plan which is his perfect wisdom so that he can chase after our selfishness? In his grace, he meets our need. He cares for us. He's involved. But when it comes to the plan and the flow, he's, he has invited us to step into what he is doing. He's not chasing after, making sure all your wants are satisfied so you're happy. He says, do you want to really know what will fill your heart with joy? Come be a part of this. Maybe in the second service, six people will be with that. You know, just we'll build some momentum. What God is doing, that's where awesome happens. That's where the soul is full and it overflows. Our mission is to join in the wonderful work we've received from Christ. The beginning of verse 18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. So we, we've We've been given something. This is, this is what we call the gospel. 
that God, being holy and perfect, must condemn all sin, and we're all sinners condemned, and there we are helpless in our sin, and God wanting relationship with us, but must punish sin, stepped in and took the sin and died in our place. And all who call out to Christ and say, would you take my sin, forgive me, I want my life to be yours. He says yes, and we are adopted into his family, reconciled. It's not just we are we have the bad things taken away. We're brought into relationships. So that is the gospel, and it is declared for anyone who would call out for it now. And we've received this as believers. And part of, then, part of being reconciled, the rest of verse 18, is we now step into that reconciling work. And he reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. It's just together. It's, he did this and. We're reconciled and we now are people sharing what has happened. We are, we're like the, we're beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. We're sinners telling other sinners where to be free. We're the burden telling the other burden where it's lifted. We're those who are made for God, telling other people made for God. He says, come to me. So part of being a believer is we share in this ministry, this work. Verse 19, what is it? That is, this is what it is. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their sins against them, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So our ministry is show and tell. Show and tell of the grace we've received. Show and tell that the Spirit is in us. Show and tell that we've received the love of Christ. We're, we're showing it. We are living it, and we're telling people this is real. Verse 20, your role has been assigned. Therefore, got that word there again, because of this gospel, therefore, we are, we are. Doesn't even say you should be or try to be. You just are. You're a representative of Christ because you do belong to him. So you do represent Christ. People know we're in here. So they're watching us when we come out of the building. What are those strange people going to do? How are they living? What are they saying? How are, how are they responding? Let me see if I can just tweak them a little bit, see what happens. There was one of the, the Sovereign Grace pastors who was Hispanic, moved into a neighborhood, and every time he put the trash out, someone would put it, after he went to work, back in his yard. And so his trash was never taken. So who did that? And then it happened again. Puts it out, comes home, it's back. No one took it. Two weeks in a row. Third week, what's going on? And he's, now he's getting mad, one of the neighbors. So he stays and watches. And the neighbor, he watches. The neighbor goes out, takes his trash cans, and puts them back in his yard. And he's going, 
I can't believe it. He's so mad. And he tells his wife, I'm going. And she says, we're, you know, we're Christian. We've got to respond the right way. They pray. So he goes over, kind of says, um, I noticed you moved my trash cans back. He was a radio show guy. He says, yeah. He says, I've been talking about you on my radio show, that you're a Christian, and I've been telling people what I've been doing every week on my show. And I've been telling them we're waiting to see how you really act. What do Christians really do? And he says, now I've got to go tell them that you are gracious and kind. So what does it mean to live representing Christ? Now, I hope you've noticed the last maybe five Sundays that I've preached, been working hard at time, been keeping the time. No one has said anything, I've noticed, so I'm telling you, in case you haven't noticed, working on time, and time says I've got a minute, and five points. So I'm just going to quickly, and I just have five statements of what it means to live representing Christ. One, we must be people of the truth. We live in fear of God. We know him. We need to be people of the truth, the word of God. That's the truth. We have to, we have to live by his word, not what the world thinks, not what we think. If we're to represent Christ, we need to be people of the truth. We know the truth of God. And so we have, to, we have to feed on the word of God. We have to live it. We have to believe it. We have to follow it. Or how can we represent Christ? Second, we must be people of Christ's love. He has loved us. And so we need to be on the path of being great commandment people. People who love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love our neighbor as yourself. We're, we're not perfectly there. We're on the path. We're, we're going that way. We're, we're great commandment people. We can't represent Christ and this incredible love if we're not on the path of being great commandment people. If, if deep love for Christ doesn't control us, then, then who are we? Can we really say we're Christians if the love of Christ doesn't control us? Third, we must be relational. Over and over, Paul uses the word reconciliation five times. He's talking about the gospel. But he's showing us that the gospel is about relationship with God. And, and so if we're not relational with God and relational with each other, how do we represent it? If we're not in true biblical community showing we're together in a relationship with God, if we're not showing depth of relationship with God or his people, again, how do we represent him? How do we reveal his heart and his word if there's no community and there's no relationship with him? People of the truth, people of Christ's love, relational. Fourth, we must be dependent on the Holy Spirit <clears throat> because we're not sufficient. But it, it's, it's more than being dependent on the Holy Spirit. 
It's being expectant and confident of the Holy Spirit. And that's why we can step into things that we think, I don't know if I can do that. Well, the Spirit of God is right here. So we can be holy. We can share our life. We can step into situations that look difficult, but we do have the Spirit of God. Last, what does it mean to represent Christ? As ambassadors, that means our life is always about something bigger, something cosmic, something universal, something eternal. So whatever it is you're doing, because you are an ambassador, because you do represent Christ, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, it means whatever you're doing is bigger than. Your life is always bigger than pulling debris out of the gutter or showing up at work or being nice to the people in the line at Starbucks or reading your Bible with your kids or helping your neighbor when you don't feel like it or getting out of the chair to help your spouse when you're done working and you're just tired or whatever it is that we're doing, the, the ordinary obediences and trying to live out what God has said, it, it's always more than just what you're doing. It's, it's about representing the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what compels us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for this wondrous gospel given to us that you now invite us to be a part of what you're doing. May we indeed be compelled. We ask that you compel those who don't know you to call out, that their hearts would be full. Compel us who are half-hearted to serve you with all that we are. Compel us as we're seeking to be consistent, to see and know and believe that you are pleased and it is worthy. We ask for your grace in this. In Jesus' name, amen.